Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm uh, Christopher Preble. I'm the Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies here. Um, several years ago, I uh, became aware of a book by Elizabeth Cobbs, American Umpire. Uh, Elizabeth and I had bumped into each other at a history conference or two over the years. And, and so this book came out. And then not long afterwards, uh, she contacted me about doing, uh, she was doing a documentary film. And uh, I was interested, and you'll see that, uh, that at least a little bit of me didn't end up on the cutting room floor. Um, uh, so it's, it's a great honor, really, to welcome um, Elizabeth Cobb. She is the producer and writer uh, of uh, American Empire, in addition to the author of the book. She holds the Melbourne, Melbourne Glasscock Chair in American History at Texas A&M University. I also want to acknowledge Jim Shelley. James Shelley, who's the producer and director, he's here. Where are you, Jim? Raise your hand. There he is in the back. He wants to make sure it sounds right. See, he's doing the sound check back there. Um, this film, uh, you all are the first to see it here in DC. It will be shown for the first time uh, in the DC area um, uh, locally on PBS station WETA. Uh, one month from today, actually, today, uh, September 23rd at 9.30. Please mark your calendars. Um, and with that, uh, let me uh, introduce a co-production of Shell Studios and WETA, American Umpire. I hope you enjoyed the film. Um, I know that one of the purposes of, of uh, uh, Lisa and Jim working on this is they wanted to start a conversation, so I figured we'd start one right here. Um, uh, Tom and Heather and Derek, I think, haven't seen the movie before today, right? So this is the first time. All right. So I, have it, I cheated because I've watched it a couple times. <laughs> uh, I was in it. Uh, I, I understand Derek's well, I arm a, was in. I had an arm that made a cameo during one of the pictures. I did not know that. Was, All right, so uh, let me just very quickly introduce who I have here on the stage with me. So Derek Chalet, he's a counselor and senior advisor for security and defense policy at the German Marshall Fund. Uh, he's the co-author, author, he's the author, co-author, or co-editor of six other books, including most recently, uh, The Long Game, How Obama Defied Washington and Redefined America's Role in the World. That's just out. Uh, he also was Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs. That's how his uh, arm was behind Secretary Hagel. He also worked with Secretary Panetta. Uh, he also served in the uh, White House Special Assistant to the President for, uh, and Senior Director for Strategic Planning on the National Security Council. Uh, and he also served in, uh, uh, in the Department of State under uh, Hillary Clinton on the policy planning staff. Uh, right here next to me is my friend Heather Hurlbert. She's the director of the New Models of Policy Change Initiative at New America. Uh, previously, she ran the National Security Network, uh, and she's held senior positions in a number of uh, places, including the White House State Department under President Clinton. She worked on Capitol Hill, uh, and she worked for the International Crisis Group. Uh, uh, next to me here on this side is Tom Wright. He's a fellow and director of the Project on International Order and Strategy, as well as a fellow in the Center uh, on the United States and Europe at the Brookings Institution. 
Uh, he was executive director of studies at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Uh, he uh, has been a lecturer at the University of Chicago and a senior researcher uh, for the Princeton Project on National Security. I guess that's where we met, right, Tom? Yeah. Princeton Project, right? Uh, and lastly, you've already met, uh, sort of, uh, on the big screen, Elizabeth Cobbs. She's the producer and writer of American Umpire. Uh, as I mentioned at the outset, she holds, I'm going to get this right this time, the Melbourne Glasscock Chair in American History at Texas A&M University. She's the author of six books in total, including most recently a novel called The, Amer the Hamilton Affair, just out, uh, and among her several uh, positions in addition to uh, her chair at Texas A&M. She also has been a Fulbright Scholar. She's the Wilson uh, Center for Scholars, and she also is currently a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. So with that, why don't we let Derek take it off? We've got uh, about um, uh, almost an hour. Uh, no, about about uh, 35 minutes for our, for our conversation. So why don't you get us started, Derek? Sure. Well, thanks for having me here, uh, yeah. Chris. And thank, really, congratulations. And thanks to you uh, and your team for what I think was a very thought-provoking and interesting film. I mean, I think if you set out to create a conversation and get not just folks who do this for a living's minds going, but engaging the public in a meaningful way, I think you've succeeded at that. And I'm really excited that it's going to be aired on PBS here and Hopefully they'll be on other, other stations around the country because I think it comes at a, at a timely moment uh, and, and there's a lot of really important ideas and some fantastic uh, footage actually here as well. So again, congratulations. Especially um, that arm. Yeah, yeah. Especially, especially the arm. But you know, I mean, some really, I mean, some things I'd not seen before, it's been, or some of the footage had been a long time. Heather and I, who are veterans of the, of the Bill Clinton administration, and some of the Balkans footage came up. She turned to me and said, boy, we're, we're getting old. <laughs> but uh, I mean, I was struck, there's many things that I was struck by in, in this film. I think it's just a couple just in, uh, to get the conversation going. Um, I mean, I think, you know, getting at this question of how much the United States should do and how much our partners should do is, of course, one of the central questions of the post-World War II era. It's one that President Obama and the Obama administration with, has, grap has grappled with mightily. Uh, during my time in government at State or at the White House or at the Pentagon, I can think of very, very few meetings that I was a part of, either sitting next to the, the boss or on my own with a foreign interlocutor where they were asking less of the United States. I mean, whether it was they wanted the meeting to be 45 minutes, not a half an hour, or whether they wanted the Secretary of Defense or State to stay an extra day in their country, or they wanted more of a particular weapon system to buy, or more of our engagement, our diplomatic time and energy and attention. Uh, the, only, the only meeting I can actually think of that I was part of where they wanted less of the United States was with the Chinese. <laughs> Which tells you something. Um, now that 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 is that that can be seen as a burden, and I think one is clearly your the take in your film looks at it more that way, which is, you know, sort of woe is us, we have all these demands placed on us, and if it weren't for the world, we could kind of keep to our knitting and go back to what we were founded to do, which I, I think there's obviously a, a rich historical debate about whether that was the true intent of the founders. Of course, there's folks on the right and the left who have a very different point of view in terms of the United States in the 18th century, 19th century, whether it's Bob Kagan, Dangerous Nation, or Walter Lefebvre, and the, the westward expansion, and, and that the, the first foreign pol policy battles we in fact faced uh, or, or waged in the 19th century, of course, to get the continental United States as one, as one territory. Um, but, uh, but clearly that question of how much intervention is necessary, 
uh, or is, the, is right for our interests is one of the central struggles that President Obama has grappled with. I think, you know, clearly your film gets to the, to the kind of the core argument of military intervention versus non-military intervention. I think speaking as someone who served at the Pentagon and you heard from many of our generals or retired generals in your film, the, there is a sense the military, has, too much has been expected of the military for a variety of reasons, uh, whether it's because of the relative weakness of other agencies of government, development, diplomacy, whether it's because of the disposition of the foreign policy debate in terms of the use of the military. Oftentimes it's because sometimes the use of military force, uh, it's, it's more measurable, it's, it's more satisfying in some way, not because if it's a manly thing, like, like Jim Mattis said, but because you can actually see effect. Whereas when it comes to diplomacy and development, it's harder to measure because it's things like the number of meetings you have or things that take time to evolve. So therefore, that's one way I've tried to think that, that the debate sometimes gets uh, uh, kind of imbalanced when we think about the use of military force. One of the things President Obama's tried to do, Secretary Clinton tried to do when she was Secretary of State, was to diversify the instruments of U.S. power. So not to rely too much on defense. Defense is very, very important, and we want to have a strong defense, but to enhance and invigorate diplomacy and development. I think that's an important trend we've seen over the last eight years, and I hope it continues uh, beyond. But then also, uh, the, the central question of your film about the division of labor between the United States and its partners. And uh, I think it was Michael Cohen who made the point about Secretary of Defense speeches to European allies, you know, saying you ought to spend more on your defense. I've written several of those speeches for multiple <laughs> secretaries of defense. And it is true, although, I mean, I, I have to say, I think our allies get uh, probably not enough credit. Uh, you know, pe most people don't understand that there, or don't re recall that there's 48 other countries involved in Afghanistan, and some of them per capita more than the United States, uh, all of whom have sacrificed. Uh, some European countries, not enough, are increasing their defense budget. And one of the challenges you face in government is you sit around tables at NATO meetings and defense ministers and foreign ministers will all agree with one another vigorously about the need to spend more on collective defense. But then, of course, those defense and foreign ministers go back to their capitals and have to deal with their parliaments who say, you know, there's other priorities. And so we, we constantly struggled when I was in government to come up with ways that we could enlarge the political debate in European countries in particular uh, to try to get them, to incentivize them, as was noted in the film, to spend more on defense. I, I'd be curious to get your take on how you think that's perhaps changed over the last year. My sense is, uh, I don't know when this was, this was complete. It looks like it was before Paris and Brussels and kind of the migration crisis yeah. taking right. Europe. But I, it, you know, the, 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 there's, there's a greater awareness, it seems to me right now in Europe, that, that there is a need to spend more on defense, not just because of questions about whether the United States is going to stay in the fight, but because of their own security, and there's a more acute a sense that this is not a land of, at peace right now, that the European continent is under threat, both from within and without, so that debate could, could be changing. But the other thing I was struck by, and I'll close here, is that it was, when it came to the division of labor between the U.S. and, and Europe, it was, or, and its partners, it was mainly about Europe. We didn't hear much about Asian partners, and of course a big uh, goal of the Obama administration has been the rebalance to Asia, which is trying to engage our Asian allies more meaningfully, not just in security issues, but political and e economic issues. And then, of course, the Middle East, which has been the cauldron for the United States post-9-11 in terms of the use of our military and the, and the huge security challenges we face. And I think we can all agree on this stage we've made some catastrophic mistakes in terms of intervention in the Middle East, and some might argue right now mistakes in non-intervention in the Middle East. 
Uh, and I think that's, that's one of the interesting questions we have to grapple with, because I think it's very easy as, as Barry Posen you know, is, is well-known and a, a well-established, uh, uh, well-recognized well, uh, academic, but it's easy sort of in an academic setting to sort of say on paper, this is how it all should work, but in the scrum of the real world where it doesn't work that way, and so these hard choices are in front of us in terms of whether we intervene or not intervene, and non-intervention is also, could lead to things that we don't like, living with that is often very difficult. So I'll close with that, but anyway, again, congratulations. Look forward to the discussion. Well, I will jump in after that, and I will congratulate you for having made a film that's a marvelously nonpartisan tool for discussion in a very <laughs> partisan yeah. moment. Um, because what I think an, an essential truth that I think you capture really well is how much these questions. Hmm, am I not? Ah, there you go. There um, the how much these questions um, trans cut through sort of major ideologies and political parties. And um, I, and I'm guessing my fellow panelists, um, if we each had a dime for every time we've been asked to explain what is the partisan version of this or that, and you have to explain, well, no, this is a, this is a divide, but it isn't a partisan divide, um, you know, we could buy you a new AV system yes. here. Um, Ouch. <laughs> but so it's wonderful to have a tool out there that, that really lifts, that, that, that I could see you were very careful and thoughtful in how you balanced public figures that you used. And it's, it's really going to be a wonderful sort of teaching tool to this discussion, which I think very often our, our media and our non-expert non influencers, if you will, actually don't have the tools to talk about this. So what's isolationism? Well, if the founding fathers believed it, is that the same thing as isolationism? Um, what is, a, what is, where does realism, what is realism and where does it fit? And without using any labels, this was a very nice expose to a, a different prism to, to look at the world. And as someone who's been very frustrated trying to explain that there are multiple perspectives to our very, um, in, in this particular climate, I really, that I just, that's going to be a wonderful resource to have out there. Um, I also have a couple sort of comments slash questions that really are, unlike your typical Washington panel, genuine questions that I'm really <laughs> eager to get your answer to. One is um, I enjoyed the historical framing, which is I, we don't get enough of. And I think it's also interesting to note that we've been in this political cycle where we've heard a lot more about American history and we've heard a lot more about American foreign policy prior to 1945 than frankly we usually do. And again, so I think you're, that you're, you provide a wonderful tool for, for starting to think about that. Make me wonder why you didn't talk about Monroe Doctrine, um, also Spanish-American War, the Philippines. And I wondered, I mean, I will note that for myself, those seem to be somewhat complexifying of the thesis you put forward that we weren't quite as good at staying uninvolved as maybe we liked to tell each other that we were. And so I wonder, I would love to hear you talk a little bit about how you see those, uh, that tendency to go, other, go places, use military force for the good of helping other people in ways that also conveniently helped us, as how you, how you see that as either being seeds of what blossoms after 1945 or so. So that's one, one thing I would note. Um, a second 
frustration that I have as someone who comes out of the diplomacy and foreign policy side of the house is that we as a community and as a country have slipped into this almost total elision where we are incapable of talking about security, foreign policy, and influence without talking about force, war, and guns. And I thought the film in several places was trying to make that distinction, but then kind of slid back into eliding the two. So the, the UN being a great example that where you had the marvelous clip of Michael Cohen at the end listing off all the accomplished, all the ways that the US is umpire that have very little to do with military force. Unless you want to make the arg explicit argument that we couldn't maintain trade <coughs> rules, human rights norms, internet access norms, health and safety norms without having the size of military that we do, which is an interesting argument, but not, I thought, the one you were making. So. Something, again, I observe from my years spent both in and out of government trying to explain foreign policy to Americans is that, and I don't know how much this was always the case and how much it's become more extreme in the modern era, but if it doesn't bleed, it doesn't get on TV. And if it doesn't get on TV, we don't know that it happens. You know, the classic number, um, defense spending is 50% of our discretionary budget. Diplomacy and foreign assistance are 3%. Um, you made the comment, Derek, which I think is a really good one, that one of the reasons for the continuing drift of roles and functions to the Pentagon that really don't belong there have to do with other agencies being starved and under-resourced. But as a, as a non-expert person watching the film, I'm not sure I would come away with the idea that there was anything good that the US should be. So gee, did those Peace Corps volunteers and that and the trenches in Afghanistan from the 50s and 60s, did they just fall out of the sky? <laughs> did the US budget pay for those? Is that part of foreign and security policy? Is Barry Posen for that or against it? Mm -hmm. um, and that, that um, and again, the film, I really admire the film because we live in this time where it is so damn difficult to talk. Number one, you can't talk to Americans about good news. Um, <laughs> Right. You know, um, the US eradicates guinea worm. How many people knew that happened? Oh, I see a hand going up in the front row. Thank you. Um, but, you know, and it's not, it's not your fault. It's not, cover, it's not covered. It's, I'm, I'm not meaning to make the I'm not meaning to harangue the audience. But so I'm, I'm curious, you know, and you, you can't solve that problem with one movie. I would, I am curious how you think about how you thought about that as you were trying to really jam so many ideas into a, into a 50 minute space, which I have enormous admiration for. Last thing, which point which you made, which I continue to be shocked isn't obvious to everybody, and that is the generation gap on foreign policy in America. And I, I literally just before coming over here was talking to a reporter patiently explaining again that this isn't an ideological gap, it's a generation gap. And that if you grew up watching Iraq and Afghanistan, you have the idea that there's nothing the US can do to make things in the world better. And, and whereas if you're older, whatever ideology you come from, you can probably vaguely remember some good thing that happened once or, or some bad thing that was, that was averted. And I, I um, coming as is obvious, if you look at my bio from the Democratic side of the aisle, we just had a primary that was very much fought out over this age division. And I think we, should we be fortunate enough to keep the White House, will have enormous difficulty governing with a rising electorate 
that looks at the world and says the US is a force for good in the world? What are you talking about? Um, and you, you had a marvelous graphic that showed that. And again, in non-political terms, not connecting it with ideology, but rather with American history takes turns. And that's a turn that I think we in Washington really haven't figured out how to connect with, with the citizenry about. So um, I'll be fat. I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit also about what you hear when you go to college campuses. Okay, thank you, Heather. Tom, go ahead. Um, firstly, congratulations, like the, my other two panelists. I'd like to congratulate you on the movie. I thought it was very uh, interesting. And, and uh, I remember in the, just before we came on, I think you said you, you uh, finished it. Uh, about a year ago, and I was just in many ways struck by its prescience, actually, because it's, uh, I mean, if anything, this issue has become even, you know, has really burst onto the scene. I mean, it was something that foreign policy people were talking about, but I've been particularly uh, surprised uh, by the extent to which it's featured in the uh, in the foreign policy debate in, in the election. And I think that will continue past uh, November, regardless of what happens. And so I think you've really come out with a, a movie here that, that is right for the, for the time. And I think we'll get the conversation started. And I'd also like to thank you and Chris for inviting the three of us here, since I think we, we all are probably coming at it from a slightly different place in terms of the, in terms of some of the arguments that have been made. And I guess you wanted us to be a little bit uh, provocative. So I might, I might try to fulfill that role just a tiny, just a tiny bit. Um, because I was provoked, I think, uh, especially by the last sort of third of the movie. I, I really loved the, the footage and everything and the, and, uh, uh, throughout. And, but at the last third, I think I would just make sort of three points. Um, the first is, you know, watching it, you could be forgiven for coming away with the impression that Europe was forcing the United States into all of these wars and military commitments that the United States wouldn't do uh, if it wasn't for the fact that it was committed to Europe. But the United States didn't invade Iraq because Europe asked the United States to invade Opposite, Iraq. Opposite, actually, yeah. The United States didn't invade Afghanistan, and the United States didn't intervene in Vietnam because Europeans asked them to. You can make an argument about the French pulling out, but basically it wasn't, that wasn't the primary or driving cause. In fact, as, as Chris just mentioned, uh, Europe, half of Europe backed the United States in Iraq. Right? And, the, and Australia did, and several other countries. And the reason they did so was because the United States asked. Right? If you talk to Blair, their senior advisors, Howard, Howard's senior advisors, I mean, what they say is, we you know, weren't really that sure about this. They were sort of inclined to the argument. But they did it because they were asked to do it. And they were asked to do it because there was an alliance. And they, and they went because they're allies. That you know, is never mentioned as part of burden sharing. But the British did a lot of burden sharing in Iraq, including uh, just by supporting it. And Blair paid the ultimate political price for doing so. Arguably, his Labour Party paid an even greater price uh, for doing so. And so there are many people in Britain today that feel like they paid a huge burden uh, because of US foreign policy. And, and you know, Afghanistan's a little different because there was a direct threat to Europe, but it was the United States that was attacked and it was Article 5 that was invoked. And so I think there's, you know, everyone here I think agrees that European countries should be spending more on defense. I think that's an argument we've all sort of made. But I think the narrative, which is, is gaining a lot of force just nationally, that this is a completely lopsided sort of arrangement, I think leads out a significant uh, part, of the, part of the picture. Uh, the second point is that I, I was really struck by this in Barry Posen's comments. You know, the, the, 
I, I felt like he didn't really completely come clean about what his strategy actually is, right? Because um, there are real trade-offs here. I mean, there are no, all good things don't go together. I mean, you can't pull back and then everything stays as it is and everyone sort of does what uh, the United States is doing already. And you can't in, get involved and not pay a price for not getting involved, right? So if there was a perfect sort of formula by which you could have all good things, I think we would all jump at that in a second. The point is that you have to sacrifice something. And what Barry is willing to sacrifice is security in the rest of the world. I mean, his view is the United States will pull out and the rest of the world will become more dangerous, but the United States will be safer because it can protect itself from all of those problems. And that you'll see all of this sort of balancing and security competition in Asia and Europe. And but the United States, and this is the essence of offshore balancing, the United States should only intervene if a hegemonic power is poised to dominate one of those continents. So uh, wars that are fought to a stalemate are fine. Massive security competition and crises that don't, uh, that don't explode in a hegemonic sort of takeover are fine. Huge increases in tensions or reductions in trade and economy, fine. And they use, as their example, the 1930s. This, for many realists, is, a, is an example to follow. The United States stayed out of the conflicts in the 30s till the last possible moment, and then intervened at a moment of overwhelming strength. Steve Walt and Barry both make this point, and then was able to take the share of the spoils. Well, you know, I think we ought to talk about that. I mean, is that, is that, a, is that a model for U.S. foreign policy in the future, that the sort of that the, the 1930s sort of approach uh, is one where you can remain sort of an offshore balancer and intervene um, at a moment of, of choosing, or is a type of preventive, preventive diplomacy and forward deployment uh, worth the cost? Now, you know, that's an argument. I, I accept that there's a huge burden that has been paid. There's a massive super price that goes along with being a superpower. But I think that's the, you know, if, if this debate continues, I think that's the, the point that I will be uh, trying to make in a way is that there is a trade-off. And I think to run Barry's experiment or to run that offshore balancing experiment, you need a really strong reason, right? Like you need a really strong reason to completely reshuffle the deck. And to me, uh, a percentage point of GDP and defense isn't a sufficient reason. Uh, to, to run that level of an experiment. Others, I totally understand, have a very different view, but it doesn't seem to me that the security posture is untenable uh, from a military or a diplomatic perspective. It may, be, it may be annoying, it may be unfair in some respect, but it's not untenable. And then the final point um, is, you know, just I think we need to look at what the effects of running this experiment are, because I know Derek and I may have a slight disagreement on this one, but if you look at Libya, the president was very clear in his interview in the Atlantic that he pulled back to some degree in Libya to try to compel Europeans to do more. And he says that the reason Libya failed was because the Europeans weren't up to the task. Now, what's happened since is that there's a, there's a worse uh, terrorist threat from Libya. Libya is greater destabilized. France faces a bigger threat. Populist parties in Europe have been empowered, including uh, Marine Le Pen and the Front National. And so my question is, you know, was that worth it? Was the, was, the, was the cost savings on not being a little bit more forward-leaning in Libya worth the deterioration in the European security environment? Because they're doing more now. They're spending more in defense. France has 10,000 troops in one of their biggest missions. I mean, okay, it's not so huge, but they've 
10,000 troops patrolling the streets of France in a pretty significant uh, development under a state of emergency that if it's not continuing has only recently um, expired. And so I think we need to think carefully about sort of doing some of these things what the, that likely effect is going to be. Um, but I think this is, you know, I'm really glad you did this, actually, because I think it's, I know I'm being uh, critical, but I think it is a debate that we need to have, and it really has been bubbling up beneath the surface, and I hope this is the beginning of a really, a really great uh, conversation in the, in the year or years to come. So thank, thank you. you. Mm -hmm. Lisa, do you want to? I'll be very brief, because you got a chance to hear from me, but I just want to say how grateful I am to be at this, in this auditorium, in this city, with this group of panelists, because I am a historian and I'm not a practitioner. So my goal was to try to give us a framework for understanding our history. And I could tell you, Heather, why I think of the War of 1812. It's in the book. It's in the book. It's in the book. And by the way, I have a few extra copies of the book after the end. If anybody wants a copy, I only have about 10, but I'd be delighted to share them. And I think the big division is, uh, Permanent alliance with, alliances with others where we go to bat for them, not because of something we decided to do to protect ourselves. I mean, and, and, and by the way, humanitarian intervention is something that started to blossom, as you said, in the late 19th century and early 20th century, and the United States was a part of that. But I also think there's some big differences. And it's helpful to us to understand that there are different paths and that with careful consideration, if we want, we can consider another path. And, and as we see in this election, it's dangerous to turn our backs on popular sentiment and, about, and on younger people who have, you know, this is their democracy, their country. And so those big things are, I think, are really what the film is about. And I also appreciate so much, and it's, it's very hard to show this to European audiences. <laughs> I did that recently. Might have been a mistake. Uh, <laughs> Because this really is aimed at an American audience. And, and I think it is fair to say the United States has taken the lion's share of this burden. Not that the British lion has not contributed mightily. In the Tom's an American, terms. too, despite no, that, not, uh, that I funny realize accident. We, actually, we, have a, we, have a, we go back to UCD Dublin together a little <laughs> bit. Um, so, um, and so really, what I'd like to do is throw this open to you. Because what we've tried to do, and uh, filmmaker Jim Shelley was the one who had the idea of putting the book into a film. And it's really about trying to take academic work and make it accessible to, to the rest of us so that everybody can take part in this very, very important conversation. So thank you. So uh, I'm going to ask you uh, two, two uh, indulgences. We have just a few minutes, and there are a number of you in the audience. So we're going to group the questions together. Okay, wait for the microphone. Keep it very, very short. One question only. Okay, and please wait for the microphone for the benefit of those of you in the audience. I have... Uh, a person here on the aisle right there, sir, right there. And then uh, with the other uh, microphone, could you get the gentleman down there? Right there. Keep your hand up, Stephen. Keep it up. Okay, I see you, Hank. Go ahead, sir. Go ahead. Um, <clears throat> uh, I'm Russian, so I guess showing this movie in Russia would be a very big mistake. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, talking about Cold War, uh, about the Second World War, and not mentioning Russia may have been a little thing <laughs> that unrefined me a little bit. <laughs> um, uh, in the description of the event, I saw the uh, sentence: Washington tries to adjudicate disputes, much as a baseball umpire ensures that the players obey the rules of the game. However, most of the movie was uh, related to how America. Uh, is supposed to be dealing with its own allies, you know, no, not being an umpire, 
uh, on the world stage with the other powers that may be disagreeing actually on substance okay. with the United States. And uh, I would like to ask you whether uh, your concept the, that you introduce uh, and build on uh, actually does apply to the framework you were discussing in the book. Okay. Thank, you. Thank you. And then go ahead, Stephen. Uh, Stephen, sure. My question is, uh, should we not be careful for what we wish for because we might actually get it? <laughs> so if the Europeans were to step up and Japan were to step up, they would undoubtedly have their own strategies, their own goals, their own purposes, which might not be in agreement on key issues with the United States. So isn't it, aren't we ultimately better off uh, prepare, paying the dominant role financially and getting the ensuing dominance, say, politically? Um, uh, Lisa, you want to take either one of those? I think most, uh, we're often perceived as an empire, not an umpire which was one of the reasons for writing the book, which gets back to a comment that Heather made, which is the overwhelmingly negative impression that our young people have as to what the United States has done or what it is. It also goes back to my truly understanding how the founders thought of the US. And actually, it was in Ireland that I began to think about this, because the Europeans have a rather different idea about sovereignty. The US does, I think partly because we just have a really long experience of dealing with dual sovereignties. Short answer, complicated question. The other question, your, your answer, uh, question, sir, should we be concerned about getting what we wish for? You know, do we want to control the world? The world doesn't want to be controlled. Um, and I think we patronize other countries too much when we say, well, those, you know, how can we trust the French to get it right? How can we trust the Japanese to get it right? At some point, you have to trust. Otherwise, you go around trying to control the world, and the world will not be controlled, I think. But can I, can, I like my yeah, other panelists yeah. to show <laughs> okay. um, Go ahead. Um, well, I actually think that ties the two questions together rather nicely. Um, in that you, we, your, the, the, our Russian colleague makes a great point about how difficult the Russians find it to talk about this whole issue when we seem unaware of what their contribution was. Similarly, the, the frame of giving the adolescent the keys to the car, which um, returned to over and over in the movie, and as, as Derek said, for anybody who's ever had to sit in the room with um, colleagues from countries who are sort of expecting the US to come in and lay down the hammer, I know where that metaphor comes from. I think about it myself. It's, but it's completely untenable if you are genuinely trying to run the world in a, or to be in the world in a way that's not, we're making the rules and then we're enforcing them. So, you know, there's a way, there's an interesting way in which just setting up the discussion in terms of we're the umpire or we're the parent with the keys kind of guarantees that your effort at a transition will fail. Um, and I, so I think that goes somewhat to your, to your point too, that arguably, um, because of ways the, the world has changed that you talk about in the book, but couldn't jam into an hour, um, no matter which system, which whether you're a realist or a liberal interventionist, or you're going to have to think about how the US interacts with other nations in a way that um, assumes, not so much assumes competence, um, because you have to remember, if you're sitting in much of the world, you're not looking at Washington and assuming competence right now. So you kind of have got to start from a place of assuming 
equal possibility of incompetence, maybe. And that's enormously difficult for Americans. And by the way, the historical lens gives you a really good frame if your idea was we just need to keep being here doing our own thing, and eventually the rest of the world will come around to the wisdom of our ways. There is within that a certain amount of arrogance as well. <laughs> uh, OK, right there on the aisle. And then uh, right there. Yes, ma'am. Yep. Oh, and Gaffney. Uh, 54 years in defense, uh, almost all in international affairs. I'm amazed in this discussion of Europe that nobody has mentioned the massive uh, uh, depression that we have inflicted on the Europeans as our 1% stole seven to, trillion, seven to 12 trillion dollars from the US economy uh, and some equivalent amount putting the European economy into utter uh, stagnation. And now you want them to spend more against what is actually a non-existent Russian threat to take the Baltics. Thank you, Hank. I actually thought it was the collapse of the residential housing market that precipitated the crisis, but that's just me. Uh, yes, ma'am, go ahead. Yeah, Yvonne Thayer, retired State Department. Could um, you or some of the panelists address the issue of the American business, American corporate world, or as Eisenhower would put it, the military industrial complex, on the, um, on the influence, uh, or we could say the skewing toward a military, both um, budgets, as well as the use of the military tools over some of the other tools of power? Thank you. I'll answer, I'll respond to that. Because I think um, Michael Cohen is the one who addresses this question most directly. And I know Michael, Heather knows Michael. Um, in the sense that, but, but to expand what he said in the film, the, the incentives are all in the direction of those who are focusing on the threat and therefore the things that they have that will mitigate that threat. And, the, and thus, no surprise, we are all deeply fearful of the things that are going to do us harm, right? There is very little incentive for people to argue against that frame, right? Um, Cato accepted. Um, <laughs> and so, mindful of this imbalance of interests, we all, in a discussion, have to work harder to sort of be mindful of the fact there is a trade-off here, right? There are opportunity costs. When we spend money on certain things, we therefore cannot spend it elsewhere. And let's at least have a conversation about those opportunity costs, right? That's the part that we don't do very often. Go ahead, George. Go ahead, George. I just piggyback on that comment um, because I... One of the, you had a great set of graphics about, and I think it was when, while Michael Cohen was talking about the odds of slipping in your bathtub mm -hmm, being mm -hmm, greater than mm -hmm. being killed by a terrorist attack. President Obama's made the same point. Yes, he has. To much criticism, yes, by he the has. way. Uh, and where, you know, I, and we've, we've seen him, because as, as he talks about this publicly in the last year, where he says, you know, we have some, some, somebody goes and shoots up a kindergarten in Connecticut, and we can't do anything to take away anybody's guns. Right. But yet there's a terrorist attack that's someone loosely affiliated with Islam, and we're off to war. I mean, what world is that? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. And I think what you have, I mean, there, there's undoubtedly a military-industrial complex, an iron triangle between you know, industry, the Hill, the executive branch, interest groups. Um, 
there's also I th what I what I could call a, a media political industrial complex <laughs> that's uh, we're seeing this play out in front of our eyes minute by minute, tweet by tweet on the campaign trail right now, where everything gets amped up and there's this sense of we must do something immediately and normally it, it, most of the time it's we must that immediate action must be something militarily if there's a terrorist attack or something terrible happens somewhere in the world it's what are we doing about it now and there's a kind of an, an endemic impatience to uh, policymaking and our political debate that's something actually president obama's worked very hard to resist and <laughs> and in many cases to great criticism, uh, where he's tried to have a strategy and make trade-offs and, and say it's actually, this is, it's not in our interest to intervene in a cer certain situation or to intervene in a different way or not use military force here. But that's in the face of an onslaught of opinion in politics, out of politics, in the media to do something now, even if it may not make much sense over the long term. And this is where I think, again, going back just to keep more praise on you, this kind of sober fact-based debate is really necessary. And I, and I mean, this is because it's not just a question of who wins the election in November, it's just how we govern uh, whoever the next president is. Uh, and that, and we've seen these these decisions have huge consequences for for our country. So that's why it's. And, and may it's, I add, I'm sorry to this because yeah. I, I've seen your work. Um, Derek has a new book out on this very question, and you know I, I feel that we're inching towards something different. I do. I mean, I think people are demanding it. Whatever it is, we're not quite sure. But part of the point here is to try to say there are broad paths. And in the, in the immediacy of the tweet world, et cetera, and of the terrible kinds of policy decisions that you all have sometimes wrestled with, you know, real life and death decisions, you know, that's hard if you don't, you know, if, if we have this sense that there's, there's a broad path guiding us. And for, for 150 years, despite some things we could argue about, there was a broad path. And for the last 70 years, there has been a broad path. That has actually brought us to a point which is, generally more peaceful, despite all its dislocations, than 1945. Just picture 1945, for which we all have to thank Russia <laughs> for its <laughs> yes. Heroic, yes. Yes. Heroic, heroic contributions. That's a different film. <laughs> but the question is now, can we have a third path? And if, the, if that's possible, and maybe it's not, and maybe it's too dangerous, and, and Tom's raising a good point, if something's worked for 70 years, don't mess with it. On the other hand, not every business plan works for another 70 years. So that's my hope, is that maybe we can have that kind of conversation. We unfortunately are out of time. I want to, th I want to say, I'm, so I'm going to take my prerogative, since I did stack this deck against me uh, <laughs> in my own home here. Uh, so yeah, but you were in the movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. You're um, like a star. Yeah. No, not the whole movie. Um, let, me just, let me just say, say this. Um, I do think that the point of view, the perspective that uh, George Schultz articulated quite succinctly that if the United States were to step back from the world, the world will come apart at the seams. I believe that's the exact quote. And, and you raised the question, Tom, and a valid one, which is why now? Why, if that is, the, if that is what we are risking, why would we do this. And what I would say is simply this. For the international system to rely so heavily on a single country, even one as rich and powerful as the United States, is 
I think, over the long term unwise, and particularly so, why now? Particularly so when a rising share of the electorate and the citizens of this country are not bought into it. We know why the greatest generation and the generation that came after them were bought into this system, right? Because they, re they remembered what came before. But we have to address the next generation, the millennial generation that are slowly, not so slowly, coming into positions of authority. That is not their frame of reference. And for that reason, if nothing else, we need to have a conversation along these lines. I want to thank you all for coming. Thank, thank Lisa for making the